couple of things, we do this every Sunday, uh, is that if you're someone who's visiting uh, for the first time, maybe you haven't been to a church service for a little while, uh, we're very glad that you made the time to come this Sunday morning. Uh, maybe you're someone who's a bit sceptical to the Christian faith, uh, maybe it's been a long time to, you've been to a church service and maybe you had various experiences, maybe you were burnt from uh, your church involvement. We pray that you, if you haven't already been hearing, that you will continue to encounter Jesus Christ. Uh, that's our heart. We, we desire to be a Christ-centered church. And, and one of the things that we do on Sunday mornings is we take a bit of time to pause and to look at God's Word, the Bible. Uh, and you might be someone who doesn't believe in the Bible, and that's fine. We, would, we welcome your questions and your doubts. Uh, and if you're someone uh, who does and you're looking for a church home, we just want to let you know we're not a perfect church. Uh, we, but we are a, a church community, a family that believes in a perfect Savior, and we pray that you will encounter Him. You'll have to excuse my voice a little bit. Uh, no, I wasn't uh, screaming at the footy on Friday, uh, <coughs> watching my team lose. Um, but uh, it's just, uh, I think, the colds that have been going around, so just bear with me. Uh, so friends, uh, if you have a Bible, if you could turn to Judges uh, chapter 7. We're going to spend our whole time in that whole chapter. If you don't have a Bible and you would like a physical copy, we've got them up here up the front here. Please grab one. It's a gift to you. Uh, or if you've never read a Bible before, maybe just turn to the person next to you. They'll be more than happy to share with you uh, their, their Bible. So Judges chapter 7 verses 1 to 25 is where we're going to be spending our time. Normally we read the whole thing. This morning we're going to kind of start, pause, start, pause. That's how we're going to go this morning. So before we begin, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come before your throne this morning. We pray that you would meet with us as you already have been, uh, no matter whatever season in life we're in. That you reveal more of yourself and that we'll walk away knowing you more. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower me to serve the King of Kings this morning, not for myself, but for your glory. And you pray, Lord, Lord God, that you would settle our hearts and what might be um, distracting us. The Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Lord, once again, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you through your Son, the great King. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, this morning we continue our series, our walk through the book of Judges. Uh, we as a church have been kind of taking our time exploring the various judges in this Old Testament story. Uh, this is a true story. It's not made up. They're not fables. This actually happened. Uh, and this is why the Bible is great because it doesn't hide anything. It makes it very real and very raw, and that's what you will find in Judges. We've been meeting various judges along the way, and we met last week uh, this guy that's known as Gideon. Uh, Gideon is someone who's not, he's a bit of a reluctant judge. Uh, he's not very happy to be called a judge, does not want the job, uh, and he spent quite a bit of time, as we saw last week, you know, God, give me a few signs. Let me know that you're really with me. He's a bit disheartened. And we discovered last week that uh, God was definitely on Gideon's side, but not only that, for those of us who know God, that God, we, have, we are on friendly terms with God because of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we unpacked last week. So this week, we come to the second part of the Gideon trilogy, I've called it. I want you to imagine it's like a great big movie scene. This is what this whole chapter is like. It's wonderful if you haven't read it yet. 
Uh, it's the moment where Gideon, as a leader, is very feeling, probably feeling very strong. I mean, he's, he's blown the trumpet, he's let the word go out, and as we le- learned last week, the troops have arrived. He's rallied the troops, and the passage that we're about to explore, uh, they've come early. And he's gotten up early. And I, I want you to imagine, this is a strategic plan in some sense for Gideon. About 32,000 of them have rocked up to meet Gideon to get ready for battle. Uh, the enemy is down in a valley, uh, and that's where they're encamping. And then Gideon is up, up the top, and his 32,000 have gathered. They, in some sense, already have the tactical advantage. The number is given who's there to come and serve and be part of God's plan of rescue. But this morning, what I want us to consider is this. God's way is not our way. God's way is not our way. Because in this moment, God very clearly shows what his strategic plan is. His strategic plan for Gideon is to show that that he is going to be in control every step of the way. And we'll see that in our passage. But not only that, the way that God's strategy is to win a battle is to do some downsizing. So you look with me in Judges chapter 7, starting in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Let Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Um, before the uh, Avengers, before Marvel superheroes, before the DC Comics, whatever team or tribe you're in, uh, before the Star Wars and special effects, one of the greatest heroes that ever uh, existed was a man by the name of Rambo. I don't know if you've ever watched a Rambo movie. I grew up watching Rambo. He was my favorite uh, superhero of that time. Uh, Rambo was real. He was authentic. This is before, you know, the closest thing, if you're young, you're probably going, what is he talking about? Who is Rambo? Uh, maybe you've never heard of him, but uh, maybe the closest thing you have is in our day and age is that character called Hawkeye, who always is dependent on other people. Rambo was not dependent on other people. Just putting it out there. Now, Rambo, uh, my favorite Rambo episode or movie or trilogy, or it's, I know it's gone more than trilogy, is Rambo 3. Uh, Rambo 3 is where he's gone into the desert. He's, uh, there's a lot of political statements. I've watched it anyway. There's lots of stuff in it. And Rambo is fighting the greatest enemy of the time, at that, you know, the Soviets, the, the USSR. And so he's, he's going in for this battle. And there's this great scene where Rambo and his friend, the Colonel Trotman, they're waiting. And if you can see it there up on the screen, basically the whole Russian army or the Soviet troops, it seems like, have arrived. And the Colonel says to him, you got any ideas? And as he says that, the enemy... Yells out over the chopper radio, drop your weapons. And Rambo says, well, maybe we can surround them. I guess surrounding them is out of the question. And the colonel responds, "Uh, interesting time for humor, John. If you didn't know, that was his real name. See, in that moment, when we look at something like Rambo and superheroes, it's just a fake story. It's not real. (laughs) You have this moment of going, the impossible this man has got this task in front of him. 
And it's almost humorous in the way that it's played out. It's, it's kind of the sense of humor moment. And this passage I just started reading the first few verses, the statement that God makes to Gideon almost sounds humorous to say, hey, you've got too many. But see, what we're seeing in the passage here is God, the king of the universe, really revealing what's going on in the hearts, both for the people of Israel and ultimately all of our hearts. God says to Gideon, you have too many. Now, most likely he didn't in that later on we will find out the enemies actually had, there were numerous, there was a huge number of them. So in some sense, 32,000 is not really that big. What God's saying is, hey, you've got too many. And the literal way that it's described in the passage is if you look, it says, you have too many men for me to hand Midian over to you. In verse 4, the literal way of translating it is to say, Israel might brag that they've done this in their own strength and our own strength has delivered us. God is just making it very clear, if you go in there with 32,000, And if you win this battle, ultimately what you're going to say, we were down. We were the underdogs, yet we beat them. And we've done this in our own strength, in our own might. And ultimately, who will the glory go to? Who the praise will go to? All those stories that are told for generations and generations. Well, the glory and the storyline will be like the Israelites did it. We did it. We saved ourselves. Now you're going to ask the question, is God got some sort of self-esteem issues? That he needs sort of praise and wants to make sure everyone knows it was him who did it. My friends, what is happening here in this very moment is God showing who he is. That he is God and we are not. At the heart of it is God is saying the problem or core of every sin, and sin is a Christian language to say that ultimately we're saying to God, you're not the boss, I'm the boss, I'll be in charge. There's a thing that drives it all together is this word called pride. Pride says, I did it. We did it. Look what we've done. We've conquered the mountain and we've won the battle. We don't need anyone to save us. We can save ourselves. Many years ago, depending on your certain age, you might have heard of a guy called Frank Sinatra. And he sang a song, I did it my way. That whole song ultimately says, we don't need God. We'll do life our way. We did it. In modern day, there's another person who's written a similar song. It's a lady by the name of Katy Perry. She says this in a song of hers. I used to bite my tongue and hold my breath. Scared to rock the boat and make a mess. So I sat quietly, agreed politely. I guess that I forgot I had a choice. I let you push me past the breaking point. I stood for nothing, so I fell for everything. You held me down, but I got up. Hey, already brushing off the dust. You hear my voice, you hear that sound like thunder, going to shake the ground. You held me down, but I got up. Get ready, because I had enough. I see it all, I see it now. I got the eye of the tiger, a fighter. Dancing through the fire, because I'm a champion, you're going to hear me roar louder than a lion, because I'm a champion, you're going to hear me roar. I'm not going to say the rest, if you know the song. 
See, at the end of the day, I think Katy Perry, I mean, she, uh, as far as I know, she doesn't know the Lord, and I'm not going to blame her, but it, what, it, what it speaks is of something much deeper going on. What it does and says to all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we do not want to admit that we're weak, that we can't. We can't do this. In many ways, we can't actually save ourselves. But then, see, the story of the Bible is countercultural. The story of the Bible always turns up things upside down. And the Bible storyline is this, that we are weak as human beings. We are weak. And that is a wonderful space to be in. Because it's a reminder that when we are weak, being reminded that we're actually not God. And there is only one God. God is God and we are not. And at the heart of it, that you and I cannot save ourselves. Now, what I love about the story here is the way that God interacts with our friend Gideon. I mean, in this moment, here is Gideon. He's feeling confident. He's waiting to go into battle. He's waiting. He's got the strategic kind of uh, waiting up on the top of the valley. His 32,000 have come. God has promised that he's with him. (laughs) And in the very moment that he's all confident... He experiences most kind of this drastic blow. It would have been a kick in the guts for a wonderful warrior. But throughout this, we see a God who is deeply involved in Gideon's life, who's gracious, who's patient, and knows the heart of everyone there. Here we have this moment. 32,000 people have rocked up to battle. And out of those, 22,000 of them are petrified and trembling with fear. We have this picture of God knows exactly what's going on. And God in his mercy and grace says to the 22,000, you can go home. Now for Gideon as the leader, it must have been a kick in the gut. What? 22,000 of you are fearful. Must have been quite a scene. I want you to imagine for a moment if you have Dave and Robbie They've been told, go to battle. They don't really want to go to battle. They rock up to this moment. They're nervous. They're scared. And they hear this moment where Gideon says, you can go if you're fearful. And Dave and Robbie and a bunch of others, the 22,000 of them didn't turn around and go, hey, hold on, Gideon. No, man, we're with you all the way, 100%. The passage seems to tell us, thanks, we're out of here. We're gone. In some sense, they don't need to be told twice. And Gideon's army, 70% of his army walk away. 70% of his army are gone. And this is moment you feel for this guy. I'm, I'm lucky you read the passage and you kind of go, oh man, I feel for Gideon. 70% is gone. Maybe he's going, he looks, okay, there's 10,000 of you. There's 10,000 at least, 10,000. Now, if you're a visual person, and I try to find out what would 10,000 look like if it filled a stadium, uh, the closest I could find, and maybe I'm a bit biased to this oval, it's called the Glenferry Oval in Hawthorne. The Glenferry Oval in Hawthorne fills exactly 10,000 people according to the stats. So I want you to picture for a moment, if you can visualize, here's Gideon standing in the middle of the Glenferry Oval, and he looks, you know, and there's only 10,000, but they all filled the whole stadium. But there's this moment where you might be going, oh, okay, maybe at least there's 10,000. But here's the thing, God's not finished. 
God still needs to downsize a bit more. He knows the heart of everyone there. And not only that, God is in control because it's his battle, not Gideon's alone. So verse 4 says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them to the water, and I will test them for you there. Anyone whom says to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom says to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, and as a dog laps, shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped put their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him. Uh, in this passage, there's always kind of debates. There are people who love kind of the numbers and what that means and the coding and all that kind of stuff. And maybe it meant that someone who's kind of going down and, and, and drinking a particular way, that means that maybe one's more of a warrior kind of person because they're on guard is the way they drink. All these kind of conversations are going on in the background when you read this passage. But one thing is very clear is this. There are two groups of people. There's one who decides to scoop the water with their hands to their mouths, and the other one laps, gets down on all their knees and laps the water like a dog. It's this very strong language. What's really going on, friends, is to see what, who's involved in the background. That is God himself. God is very clear in what his strategy is going to be. He's going to make it a small group. It'll be a small group that will go into the battle. And it's very clear also that God is the one who knows exactly who the people are and how they're going to do what they're going to do, how they're going to drink the water. And that whole 32,000, God knows who's afraid. God knows exactly who's fearful and need to go. And God is gracious to send them home. God knows exactly how they're going to drink. And not only that, it seems very clear that God chooses the lesser number. It's a point that God is in control. It's a point that God is showing that battle will be his. Because God is the one who sets the rules. And in his very mercy, he spares people, and there's 300 that he decides to use for his plans. If you're the writer, the writer is making a point for the story to be told in generations to come. And, and as the story is being told, it's kind of very clear to see that God is stripping away from Israel any way that they will have any kind of bragging rights. All of that is being stripped away, melted away. And here you have this picture of this reality up here on the screen. I'll try to see if I can find someone who's done the work for me. From 32,000 men, 300 have come. This is God's plan. It's a wonderful reminder that God is actually not restricted by numbers. Neither is he governed by them because he is God. And it also shows very clearly to you and I, God's way is not our way. Now, on the other hand though, put yourself back in Gideon's shoes. You've got to feel really for this guy. He's been asked by God to do a task. And little by little, his mighty army of 32,000 has gone into 300. 
Gideon's faith is being very deliberately tested, I think. And it shows later on in verse 10 how Gideon's feeling. But see, what is wonderful to see in the midst of this is the way Gideon responds. Unlike before, Gideon is not asking for more signs. You don't actually hear him speak too much. It seems that at the very least, he's being very obedient to what God is asking him. And he just obeys and steps out, even though he's feeling fearful. Friends, for that, for that means for you and I, and this pause, I just want to pause for a moment, it's ask the question, where and who and what do you brag about? Where's your bragging rights? Where's my bragging rights? What do we brag about when we talk about the things of God? Do we brag about our external things? Do we brag about our personality and our gift sets? We might brag about our family heritage or not brag about it, depending on the kind of family you have. We might brag about the skills and the qualifications that we have, our education, our job status, our business success. What if we dig a little bit more and we think about the Christian realities? I go to a few different church leadership conferences and often as leaders come and ask, how are you, who are you, where's your church? Usually the next question is, how big is your church? I have a moment in that time. Who will I brag about this morning? Where's our confidence in? Is it based on our church size alone? Is it based on the kind of land we have? Look at this wonderful land. Is it on the good-looking pastoral staff that we have? Thank you. I wrote in my notes, somebody will laugh. And uh, but you all did, so I guess that's not what you brag about. Do we brag about our giftedness, our own talents? I mean, even the very ministry success that we do, and we kind of spiritualize about it, how do we brag about it? How do we talk about the things of God? Well, in those moments when we see things growing in success, in success and things are happening, how do we brag? What do we brag about? Do we brag about our God? Do we brag about our weakness? Do we struggle to talk about how weak we are? Do we want to always look like we've got it together? You know, this is innate in us in some sense, but in our culture more than ever, it's easy for you and I to brag. There's a thing called selfie. A selfie is ultimately saying, I'm going to brag about something. Me! And I've done this. And I'm, not sure, I'm guessing you've done this. It's our way of saying, look at this. Look at me. Look what I've done. Do you and I ever upload our weaknesses to the world to see? In some sense, I think ultimately we are tempted to say, we can save ourselves. We've got this. One commentator in the book of Judges puts it this way. Belief that my own hand has saved me is supreme foolishness. Belief that my own hand has saved me is supreme foolishness. Friends, what I would add to that is belief in thinking that being religious and just your amazing awesomeness or life skills that's all we brag about is ultimately indulging our pride. But what we have the storyline is, here is God involved intimately in the story. And what God wants to show to Gideon is when it happens, and it will happen, and we'll see that in the coming chapters, that the only explanation that we'll, they'll be able to recount is, well, you know what? 
God did it. There's no other explanation. God is the one who's done this. Now, when we kind of look at Gideon's life and we look at the storyline here, our temptation might also be in those moments when we have things going on in our life, whether we are a follower of Jesus in particular, our temptation might be, hey, let me do this on my own. Let me fight this battle. God, you take care of that other serious stuff. You know, the other things in every day, let me do this on my own strength. Let me sort this out. Or maybe in those moments, I don't know if you fall in this trap, I do this all the time. God, where are you? You're a bit slow. Let me take care of it. Let me step in. Let me sort this out for you. You know, I think sometimes what we do need to say is to stop and pause and consider maybe God is already involved and God is in control. And maybe we need to ask God, what's going on? What's my role here? Because friends, the reminder of the story of Gideon is to remind you and I, there's only one who has the bragging rights. The one who is gracious, the one who is powerful, the one who's fully in control. And not only that, his ways and, your, and my, our ways are not the same. His wisdom is far better than your and my wisdom. They're always the best. And his strategies and his strategic plan is always the best. Recently, I was doing some research about some mission stuff that we might consider next year for our church. And talking particularly in our Australian area, and I've been uh, chatting to some research guys from one group called McCrindle Research. And, you know, you, you can Google this. You can see all the stats. And everything it says in Australia, you know, things are declining. The, the Christian faith is declining, you know, it's from 68 to 61.1%. Uh, but, you know, there's a census that's come out, and it's been very clear. It's up here on the screen that 22% of the stats are going down of people saying they don't want to be Christians. And not only that, there's church attendance. It's dropping 48%. And then there's 269%. They've got no religion at all, no affiliation of any kind. And, you know, maybe some of us might fall in the trap of thinking, oh, well, there's two places we go. One place might be, hey, you know what? We need to try hard and we need to run all these programs, do all these things. And now I'm not saying it's bad to do programs, whether it's all good, but we kind of put our, put our faith and our, and our strength in that. And we go, let's do this. We can achieve and we can, we can reach these people. Then there are some of us, I think, whether we want to admit it or not, say, well, it doesn't matter. It's all going to go to hell anyway. But see, here's the thing. Christianity's posture is called to continuously be weak in history. That's a great spot to be in. It seems that the churches that are growing around the world and where the Christian faith is spreading in sense of kind of using modern terms is where they're the most weakest, where there's great opposition for the Christian faith. Where Christian, uh, sharing the Christian faith means death for you. And so in those moments when we as a church feel or a church community in general say, oh, look how powerful we are, look at all our programs. I mean, in some sense, more about bragging about us. In some sense, we're pushing God out. In those moments when we feel outnumbered, it feels impossible, it's hard work, or I don't know how the Christian faith is going to expand, and those are wonderful places to be in. Because as the good news of Jesus continues to be spread, as the good news of God continues to be spread, and people think around and go, how is that happening? We can actually say, well, it's all God. God did that. Timothy Keller in his commentary on Judges says this, 
Things which stand opposed to us are not as strong as they appear. Things that stand opposed to us are not as strong as they appear. In those moments when we confess how weak we are and how dependent we are and see God at work, things that stand opposed to us are not as strong as they appear. So coming back to our story in Gideon, Gideon is shaken up. In Judges 7, verse 9, it says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah to his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley, like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number. As the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley cake tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to this tent and struck it. So that it fell and turned it upside down. So the tent lay fat and flat. And the comrades answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joshua, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Midian army is up the valley, uh, sorry, down the valley, the, the Israelites are up, and, then, and, and Gideon is fearful. And this wonderful message of here where God is involved in this. God steps in and says, hey Gideon, go down, go down, for I've given this camp into your hands. I mean, if you put yourself in Gideon's shoes, it's probably one of the most loneliest moments, I think, in his life. Another commentator by the name of Barry Webb who wrote a commentary on Judges says this. It's up here on the screen. And he puts it really well where he says, Can't you sense a great loneliness? Like the loneliness of an airline pilot over the Atlantic in the middle of the night staring at a warning light on his instrument panel with 300 sleeping passengers in the cabin behind him. This is moment where Gideon is going and he's feeling the loneliness. He's feeling scared that's a wonderful truth in the Bible isn't it the Bible doesn't try to hide anything and I'm friends I don't know if you've ever felt that I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you've just felt outnumbered where you feel all alone friends these words are here for comfort for you and I because here is a God who is so merciful and gracious. He comes and he speaks to Gideon. And he doesn't rebuke Gideon for his lack of faith. He doesn't even discipline him. He says, hey, Gideon. Hey, listen. I've given you them. But if you're afraid, take your servant. I know you're feeling lonely. Take your servant with you and go down. Because I've given them into your hands. And if you can visualize for a moment, Gideon's going into the valley. Obviously, it's dark. He can't hear. He can't see everything. But I'm sure when you describe, when the Bible describes things like in abundance, like locusts and sands in the sea, and if you can imagine a bunch of camels and all the noise that would have been there, it would have been quite confronting. In other words, the biblical writers to say the odds are very clear against the people of Israel. There's only 300 men. Even there, there's more camels, it seems, than the men. And in these words, Gideon hears about two guys sitting down and talking. One hears or has a dream about some sort of bread rolling down and hitting the tent and turning upside down. 
And the other one interprets the dream for him and says, well, it's definitely the sword of Gideon, the son of Joseph. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So the dream that is given in this moment to these people is very clear. It's unsettled them. They know something's going to go really bad. The idea of a barley cake is kind of this visual picture. It's the closest thing I can think of now today is that if there was a battle and there's this full-on army tank standing in front of you and all you have as a weapon is a cupcake and you throw it at it and it turns it upside down. Here is this picture to show very clearly what is going to happen. Is we're going to be for certain? It's going to be already happening. It's going to. It's hundred percent going to be true. But remember, who is responsible for this? Do you see what they say? Did you hear what they said? Who's responsible? Is it Gideon? Is it the cake? No. God has given into his hands. Even these people, who are not God fearers, knows. Who is responsible? What we have here is this moment of God showing his involvement both to Gideon to say, Hey, Gideon, I know there's 300 men, including yourself, who are scared and afraid. Guess what? I'm already involved. I'm involved in these people's lives. I'm the one who gave this dream. They know where it's from. I'm with you. I will rescue you, Gideon. I will rescue the people. Not only that, the battle has already won. In other words, God is saying, Gideon, I've got this. Don't be afraid. He's in control. It's a reminder to Gideon that God is with Gideon and the Israelites not with the Midianites. It would have been sweet words for Gideon to hear. In verses 15 and 25, it's like towards the end of a movie, this massive battle is about to begin. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation... He worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. They divided the three men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he says to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camps, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and I all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also in every side of all camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they just set the watch and they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars and were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumps to blow. They cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade. Against all the army, and the army fled as far as Bechshet towards Sarah, as far as the border of Abel-Mahor at Tabath. The men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, from Asher, from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. There's a story in this that God is involved. God is involved in Gideon's life. Gideon is encouraged, and notice what Gideon's response is as he hears this dream and he hears the interpretation of the dream he is drawn to worship and judges seven fifteen is like if you can imagine it's like a movie and you know it's that movie when the rallying cry of the warrior leader this is it as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream he says arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand but notice the way he describes it he doesn't say hey guess what the Lord will. No, it's done. Past tense. It's already happened. 
Gideon's statement is, hey, listen, God's gone before us. God's won the battle. It's to say, hey, God has been involved. God is involved in this very moment in that he's made such a difference. We've already won the battle. Let's go. And the mighty man of valor puts an amazing strategy out. Best thing to do is create lots of noise and trumpets. Notice, though, the Israelites don't have any weapons with them. They have a torch, a a pottery thing. They smash that. They blow the trumpet to the point that it confuses the enemies. And it confuses the enemies so much, they have weapons. And what they end up doing, the Lord causes them to use it against each other. So the victory, ultimately, is not just not Gideon's. It's actually God's. God is the one who did this. God is the one who's involved. And God is the one who gets the glory. Friends, if you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith, I want you to know, maybe if you're curious or apathetic, this reminder and this story of Gideon is for you. It's a reminder to you and I that, that he is God and you're not God. And not only that, he will meet you exactly where you're at, meaning that you don't need to try to achieve your way to God or make yourself sort of all perfect to finally have a relationship with God. Ultimately, the story of the Bible says you can't. I can't. Not only that, God knows your very heart. And the depths of your heart, whether you mean it or not, you've actually ultimately said to God, I don't need you. I've got this. But your deepest of soul, you might not realize this yet, in your rejection, you're rejecting his loving authority. And what you have here is you might not admit this, maybe not yet. You're trying to rescue your own soul. But you can't rescue yourself. You can't. Because you can't rescue yourself from the greatest enemy that there is. And that's not the Midianites. That is sin and death. And God sent his son to rescue you. The prophet Isaiah, you heard it this morning at communion, read so well. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. This is talking about Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely... He took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of all. This is a prophetic thing to point to Jesus to say that God's rescue plan wasn't through someone that's really strong and mighty but someone who is weak and in that very weakest of all moments what we see is the greatest victory ever displayed in human history on that cross jesus died for you and for me and we would invite you to ask explore and seek maybe someone brought you today and keep asking questions come to an informed decision of this jesus Because there's only one way of salvation, that is through Jesus, through a humble Savior, through a weak Savior who is mighty and strong. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, that means on this side of the cross in the empty tomb, can I ask you a question? Can I remind you again? Did you save yourself? 
No. We could not save ourselves. That means you and I can come to the cross with all our fears, with all our inadequacies. Because we have full assurance and a reminder that through Jesus Christ and through His resurrection, there is one who has defeated the greatest enemy to our soul, to your soul and my soul. That is sin and death. He is the one who has done it. And the story of Gideon is a reminder to you and I Strength really comes when you and I learn to continue to grow and say, I am weak. And the Bible storyline is constantly littered with people who are not the best representatives. I wouldn't pick them if I was going to have a dream team. But God chooses people over and over again who haven't got it together, and that's okay. And we say this at Cambridge often. It's okay to be a beautiful mess. Because God, our Savior, is so gracious. You and I are a beautiful mess in Christ. He has rescued us. Because our Savior has modeled weakness in the most glorious way. On that cross, in weakness and humiliation, what we see displayed, wrapped up, is the power of God and the majesty of God displayed for salvation for people. Because it is our God who fought for you and for me through His Son. This is why we can boast in our weakness. The Apostle Paul, who was a fairly well-known man in New Testament history, writes this about himself. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass to me to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, and I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul's perception of life is very clear. That in his weakness, it is a good place to be in because that's when it shows how strong and mighty God is. Because God has won the victory. And that's the reality that faced him. And friends, it's also a reminder to you and I, for those of us who are prone to try to find the glory for ourselves, that there is a God who still opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's a good place to be, Christian friends, to say that we're weak. Because that means we can confess we're dependent on God. It's okay to say that we don't actually have it all together, and it's okay to say, I don't know. Particularly if you're sharing your faith for those who don't know Jesus. Don't pretend you know everything. It's okay. It's a good place to be in. And it's okay to say we can't do it. Because in those moments we can say, God is my saviour, God is my warrior, God has fought on my behalf through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful reminder that on this side of the cross, the empty tomb, that we are on the winning side. The battle has been won. So let's brag about our weaknesses. And learn to brag about our great king, who is mighty and strong. So what does that mean for you and I this week? Maybe simply... Take a couple of minutes this week to ask, well, God, where's my confidence in today? Is it the things of you or the things of myself? 
when we think, talk about the things of God and what God has achieved? Do we actually just talk about what God has done rather than just our own abilities? And finally, maybe one thing you need to consider and I need to consider is to pause and ask God through His Word to continually reassure us of His strength and His promises. Because that will enable us to be living a life of radical obedience. So as the music team comes up, I want to just put this prayer up for you. Uh, I got this from a little devotional written by Tim Keller on Judges. I'm going to invite you to pause for a moment, then I'll pray, and I want you to just look at those words. And whether if you feel comfortable or not, uh, you can either say that to yourself quietly, and in a moment I will lead us in that prayer. So I want to give you a few minutes to digest that, and I'll lead us in prayer before we sing the last song. Join with me in prayer. Father, we come before you. We ask that you help us not to be strong or to be tempted to win glory for ourselves. Father God, your ways are always the best. Thanks for saving us. Thank you for the reality we can't actually save ourselves. Help us to embrace weakness just as your word says, so that your strength can be shown through us. Help us to praise you and praise weaknesses and not to worry about what the world thinks of us, but to more rest in what you think of us. So help us to obey, Lord, even in our weakness, so your Son may be greatly shown to the world that lives around us for your glory. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.